Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Missed opportunity is the nothing personal word of the day for October 20th, 2022. Missed opportunity. How many of us have had that in our lives? Something happens and you look back and say, oh, God dang it, dog it. What I could have done at that moment, if I could do it again, I would have said this when you have like a comeback to somebody saying something or criticizing you and you say something in return, but you say it too late. It was one of the great scenes on an old show called Seinfeld when he wants to go back to the person after the fact to give the comeback and it just doesn't work. Missed opportunities can happen when you take the wrong job, you pass on an opportunity that comes your way. When opportunity knocks, you answer. The New York Yankees yesterday had an opportunity to get a game against Justin Verlander. It was game one of the American League Championship Series. And it seems as though going into the game that the Astros have every advantage. Verlander coming off a terrible start against the Mariners, 39 years old. Is it possible that he's out of gas, the presumptive favorite to win his third Cy Young? You're pitching backwards. The Yankees starting Jamison Tyone, the number four starter. It's, it's a give-me game. We had the Astros over the Yankees in the pick of the day. It's, it's an easy one. The Astros are going to win. So all of a sudden, when you face an ace the way you, when you meet and you do your hitters meeting, which the Yankees do, doesn't matter they got in late, doesn't matter they had no off days, there's still a hitters meeting before a series starts. And in the playoffs, you do a hitters meeting before every game, actually. <coughs> Good morning. So you do a hitter's meeting every day. When you're facing Justin Verlander, you want to make sure that you get him early because getting him early is the best way to get him. And that's pretty much the case with most aces in Major League Baseball. They'll struggle in the first inning, maybe the second inning. It's sort of uh, until they settle in because once they settle in, you're going to have a hard time. So... When Brian Cashman is putting together the lineup for game one, they made a few changes that were of note. One, Giancarlo Stanton was playing the field for the first time since July. He had him playing left field because Aaron Hicks got hurt the day before in the division series and was replaced not by another outfielder. So Stanton is now not DHing, taking the field. Matt Carpenter, the erstwhile good player who had not played in quite a while, 
like since August, was DHing. The Yankees go into the game knowing that they're going to have Tyone on a short leash, which means if he gets into any trouble, they're going right to their bullpen. They've got a long guy in Domingo Herman. They've got Clark Schmidt ready to go. They're just not going to go to Wandy Peralta. They're not going to go to to Jonathan uh, or or to Clay Holmes. And the reason they are not doing that is you can't pitch the same guys every game. You have a roster. You're going to have to use them at some point during a series. So... You have your game plan going into game one, and you're saying to yourself, we need to get one of two games in Houston. That's what the road team says. But it probably will not be today, but let's see what happens. We're okay if it's not. Can we just tell you that what I just said, if you were a studio audience, you'd be yelling and hissing. Of course they don't say, we're okay if it's not today. At the end of the game yesterday, someone actually said to the manager, Aaron Boone, as you know, the Yankees lost. Someone said to Aaron Boone, hey, were you even trying to win that game? And Aaron Boone looked and said, are you kidding me? We try to win every postseason game. Of course you're not throwing away a game. You see how every game unravels. And this Yankee game, it was one-to-one. As a matter of fact, the Yankees had a one-run lead when Harrison, I went to Horace Mann Bader, hit another home run. That's his fourth home run in his first six postseason games. He's in the record books with Babe Ruth. Six games, four home runs. It's insanity. Verlander is on the ropes. Second and third, one out. In baseball, when you have second and third, one out, and you're in the postseason, you've got to get that run in. Hard stop. Josh Donaldson is at the plate. What we tell the players, and it's pretty easy, Please make contact. Please get the ball in the air. I've told you this story before, but I will tell you as often as I can. Because when you get to sit with a Hall of Famer for 16 years, you get to learn a lot. And I got to sit with Tony Perez and Andre Dawson every game, every home game in Miami. There'd be runners on second and third, one out, and the runner would not be driven in by the batter, and they would go crazy. They would say, because Tony Perez was an RBI machine with the big red machine in the 70s, he would say, we had an approach. We were not hitting with men on second and third and under two outs the way we were hitting with no one on leading off an inning, or the way we were hitting with bases loaded in two outs, or the way we're hitting with two strikes. They had different approaches depending on the different circumstances of the at-bat the situation of the game. It's called a concept that is not in analytics anymore. It's called situational hitting. The postseason requires situational hitting in a way the regular season does not. In the regular season, when you are looking at analytics and you've got 162 games to normalize all the results, I am a little more sanguine to allow analytics dictating the approach. In the postseason where your sample size is at most seven games and maybe as few as four, you do not do anything other than get the run in. If that requires giving yourself up in a bunt, if that requires sacrificing, whatever it requires, you have to do because every run in the postseason matters in a way that is magnified over a run in the regular season. That is just obvious to me. 
when I saw what Josh Donaldson did in his at-bat, forget the fact that Matt Carpenter struck out with two outs and men on second and third. What Josh Donaldson did, it's like he didn't know there were runners on base. And I'm not blaming the hitting coach or Cashman or Boone. I'm not blaming any of those people. I'm blaming Josh Donaldson. It's harder than it looks, I'll grant you that. From the TV, from the couch, as outsiders, you could say, hey, how do you not get that run in? And the player always responds with, you don't realize how hard it is. No, I get it. But Josh Donaldson, that's your job. And what I looked at was not the result. I looked at the approach, and he was up there hacking as though he didn't realize the situation. An incredible missed opportunity where Verlander was on the ropes. The ace was on the ropes, and when you let an ace off the ropes, who's on the ropes, the next thing you know, you're in the ropes. And that's what happened with the Yankees. He ends up striking out 11. He ends up getting the last. He struck out like six in a row. He now has the most postseason strikeouts having passed Clayton Kershaw. You're talking about one of the great postseason pitchers ever. Huge missed opportunity for the Yankees in that game. They end up losing 4-2. to They had the time run on. They had opportunities. They did not get it done. What's the mentality now going into game two? The mentality is the same as going into game one. You try to get one of two in the first two on the road. The problem that the Yankees have is that it doesn't get easier for them and they're still pitching backwards. So when I told you that's what the Yankees were doing, it didn't just mean for game one. It meant also for game two, because in game two, they have their number three starter. But we're getting closer because the Astros have their number two starter. The problem is the Astros' number two starter, that's like playing the Mets when you're facing Shermer. Shermer. When you're pace. <laughs> Here we go. That's what happens when you're in the studio till one in the morning and then recording the next morning. Sometimes your words get a little gobbled. Scherzer and DeGrom, the best one-two punch in baseball, are sitting on the couch. Verlander and Valdez are just as good a one-two punch. Nola, Wheeler, Phillies, just as good a one-two punch. When you've got two aces going, that puts a tremendous amount of pressure on the other team. The Yankees are up against it tonight. We'll talk about later what my view is of that game. But the missed opportunity is something that is going to haunt them. Justin Verlander is an interesting character, an interesting situation. I have not seen a player that good at that age since Roger Clemens had needles that his wife used with vitamin B. Yeah, whatever. Justin Verlander, clean, effective, and old and throwing 95. It's magical. Justin Verlander coming off Tommy John. Justin Verlander, who has one year left on a deal that's a player option at $25 million. We talked about that when he signed it. A player option, as you know, means if he can get more money than what he is owed in the player option, he will decline the player option and then sign the new deal. But he will only decline the player option when he knows that he's got more money in hand. If you want to stay with your team, and you saw A-Rod did this when he got a new contract with the Yankees. There are a bunch of players who do this. They turn down their option and re-sign with the same team. Justin Verlander gave a very interesting, purposeful quote a couple of days ago 
that was meant for the Houston Astros front office when he said, I want to play until they rip the jersey off me. Justin Verlander made it very clear. Not only is he not retiring, but he is going to make sure that the Astros continue to re-sign him, not until he's ineffective, but until he's so bad over such a long period of time that they're willing to take one of their stars, one of their heroes, and eliminate him from the team. It is so uncomfortable for a front office to read that quote because what that means is you're screwed. That means that you are going to be paying that player for performance that he's not going to give you at one point in time. So when you've got a player who says that, I understand from Verlander's standpoint why he said it because he wanted everyone to know that's what's going to happen. Front office, my response is, I'm giving you one year at a time. I'm not giving you two guaranteed years because you're not going to walk away from your guaranteed money. You're going to be on the other side of 40. It is highly unlikely that you are going to continue to do what you're doing unless your name is Nolan Ryan. Maybe you're the second coming of Nolan Ryan. It's possible, but I'd rather go year to year. And I'm happy to go year plus an option in that case if you're demanding it, but that is going to be based on innings pitched the previous year because then I'll have some sort of control. If you're ineffective, I'm not going to let you start every five days. However, Justin Verlander is going to get a race. So he's going to get out of his contract. He's going to opt out, and he's going to get more than $25 million on an average annual value, and it's going to make sense for him. It's going to make sense for the Astros, but there's going to be an inflection point where given his comments that Verlander will be getting paid for what he's not doing. The Astros have an issue which they will not much care about if they win a ring at the end of this month or at the beginning of next month, but still the front office is thinking down the line because you have to do that. So that was the ALCS. A lot of storylines. Yankee fans are despondent beyond repair. Is it possible to beat the Astros four out of six because that's what you have to do? Uh, It's way better to beat them four out of six than it is four out of five. So tonight's game becomes quite critical. It's a must win for the New York Yankees tonight. Oh, relax. I'm just kidding. It's not a must win. It's a God we really like to win. That's what that game is. That was the second game of the doubleheader, which you wouldn't realize because when baseball schedules these games, and if you've looked at the schedule for the LCS, it is incredibly troubling to me that there's going to be overlap so often yesterday there was overlap one of the games started at 4 30 the other game started at 7 30 and what exactly did you think that the 4 30 game would be over at 7 30 the 4 30 game ended at 8 30 and the game the yankee game started at 7 30 so i'm trying to figure out watching split screen in a studio it should be way easier in a studio don't you think so Game one was Phillies Padres, another missed opportunity. We get to use the word of the day twice. When you win game one on the road the way the Phillies did, you can go for the jugular. And you've got your second ace on the mound in Aaron Nola. You don't settle for one. You go for the mini sweep. And then all of a sudden, in the second inning of that game, the Phillies had a 4 nothing lead with a bunch of doinks, a bunch of 50-mile-per-hour exit velocity Sinai hits. I wasn't allowed on the air last night to call them duck farts, and I don't know why, because that's what they are. That's the expression that's used in clubhouses. That is when a ball sort of finds its way 
It's not hit very hard. It's hit like a wiffle ball. It's hit like a fourth grader would hit a ball, but it becomes a base hit because there's nothing that you can do about it. There is something you can do. Let me tell you a sun story. Coca, can we do it? This isn't in the rundown. Can, can I tell you a sun story? Sun story is, we're talking about the planet, the the sun, right? The star. Wait, the sun's a star or a planet? Oh, my God. I'm so sorry, Horace, man. I know Harrison Bader's going to be your star pupil. Is the sun, just tell me, Coke, I'm not doing the correction tomorrow. Just let me know when you have it because astronomy was not my thing. I mean, I like Carl Sagan. I had to watch Cosmos in seventh grade and do a whole thing on it, which was a documentary long series on regular TV. And I had to watch every night and take notes. And what I learned from Carl Sagan is there are more stars in the sky than grains of sand on the earth. And so the next time I was at a beach, I remember this. I took like an entire handful of sand and I was like, that that's like thousands right here. And this is one handful of one beach of one area in one little corner of the world. Are you telling me there's more stars in the sky than grains of sand in the entire planet? I never got to ask Carl Sagan, but assuming he's right, and the sun is, is a star, which means that every one of the stars could be a sun, which means there could be planets around every star. It's mind-boggling to think about it, isn't it? Oh, but don't worry. We're the only people who have Major League Baseball. <laughs> it's so silly, right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not the conspiracy theorist who looks up and says, hey, there's aliens. We're going to take over. It's total men in black type stuff. I mean, it just, there's no chance that the only life form is on one planet of one star. Does that even mathematically make sense to anyone? Anyhow, so when you play day games and you don't have a roof, there's something called the sun. And the sun, there are sun studies that you do when you build a ballpark. And every existing ballpark has the same sun studies. What those studies do is they show you the shadows. What's the name of the, uh, it'd be so good if I had transitioned Coca into the name of the guy, what we see in the shadows. Is that Tahiti Fertiti or Frittata? Yahidi Mamrata, um, what we see in the shadows, that great that great show that you told me to watch that's so funny. Oh, Taika Watiti, yes. If you haven't watched that, you should, by the way. We reviewed it on Nothing Personal. So you have a study, a sun study. It really should be called a shadow study, but it's called a sun study. And what you get is you get printouts of the field and where the shade will be at each sort of five-minute increment. Then you go out with your players and you practice at different times with the sun in different places so that fielders can get used to where the sun is. Then you give players not just sunglasses. One of the angriest I ever got was we had a player, an outfielder, who's still playing Marcelo Zuna. And he lost a ball in the sun one time, and his sunglasses were attached to the top of his um, helmet. You know, some players wear their sunglasses not on. They put them on top of the brim. Some players wear them backwards. And after the game, I said, "Just I'm just asking if you can help me. Um, were you, what were you waiting for to wear your sunglasses? Like, is that a fashion statement? Or were you waiting for, like, a sunny day? There wasn't a cloud in the sky and you were struggling with the sun without your sunglasses on. So we have sunglasses, and this is not, they're not $2 sunglasses. These players have really good sunglasses. And then you teach them, the outfield coach and the infield coach teaches them how to shade the sun with your glove and also 
Anthony Rizzo, the eye black that players wear, that also helps with shade when there's sun and lights because sometimes the lights at night can act like the sun and you have to get used to that as well. That's your job. It's sort of like being a truck driver and not knowing how to drive manual or not knowing what certain signs are on the highway. When you play in the outfield, dealing with the sun is simply part of your job. Hey, I don't know where the gas tank is. I ran out of gas. You're a driver. You got to know where the gas tank is. So the Phillies are playing the Padres. Fly ball by the Phillies right to Juan Soto. It's going to be an out. No problem. Juan Soto puts his glove over his eyes, and all of a sudden he puts his hand over his head and ducks because he's about to get hit because he lost the ball. Now, you could say, David, stop getting on Juan Soto because that happens. Players lose a ball in the sun. Not in the playoffs, you don't. There's no excuse for it. It is not a, that is a mental error to me, not a physical error. Physical errors I can excuse. When a ball eats you up, it happens. Mental errors are throwing to the wrong base. Mental errors are not being prepared for balls that are going into the sun. They know exactly where the sun is. They know exactly that the game's starting at 1.30, and Soto's got to be better, and it was costly. The Phillies score four runs. Aaron Nola, the guy who hasn't given up a run, has a four-run lead, and the Phillies are about to go up 2-0 in a best-of-seven by winning two on the road. I give A.J. Preller and Bob Melvin credit. The Padres, I thought, were going to fold like a tent. And instead, they fought back. Blake Snell, who I thought was going to have a temper tantrum when his defense did not back him up and he gave up these little dink hits plus the sun-aided double. Instead, Blake Snell buckled down and didn't give up anything after that. And the Padres scored eight unanswered runs and ended up winning the game 8-5. to Talk about missed opportunity. That's one of the great missed opportunities possible. If you give me 10 games with a four-run lead for Aaron Nola, he's going to win nine of them. And it just happened at the wrong time. The other thing of note that is a family issue that wanted to mention because it's a story that goes beyond baseball, and it's about parents and their kids. And we saw it in football. Do you remember, Coca, there was the Super Bowl of Harbaugh versus Harbaugh? I don't remember what year it was, and I don't remember what teams they were coaching. One of them coaches Michigan. One of them coaches the Ravens. But the Michigan guy must have been coaching an NFL team at that point. I just can't remember which one. And they interviewed the parents, and the parents said, I don't even – San Francisco, Jim at San Francisco, thank you, and John at Baltimore. Was that recent? I don't – was that, that – that was not with Lamar – Oh, very recent. Oh, 2012. Thank you. Not that recent. So Aaron Nola was the pitcher for the Phillies, and his brother, we drafted his brother Austin Nola in the fifth round in 2012. We always laugh that we drafted the wrong Nola because Aaron Nola is the younger brother who's this great pitcher, and Austin Nola was the older brother who was not good and wasn't going to make the big leagues, and ended up being released by us. And then he ended up somehow resuscitating his career and is the starting catcher for the San Diego Padres, who are now in the league championship series. So for the first time ever, you had a brother facing a brother, pitcher versus hitter. It had never happened before. And never say never in baseball because everything's happened. This had never happened. And they did an interview. Ken Rosenthal did a great interview with the father of... The, the players of Austin and Aaron Nola, and he was wearing a Phillies jersey and a Padres jersey. Now, what do you think the parent was rooting for? 
because I've spoken to parents of brothers who were playing baseball, and here's what they root for. They wanted Aaron Nola to win the game and Austin Nola to get three hits. Aaron Nola is going to have more career earnings. Aaron Nola is going to be and is an ace-like superstar. Austin Nola is a fringe player, a but still a professional. I don't want to take away anything from what he's done, but it is not uncommon for parents to back the better horse. It's not that they feel badly for the older brother or badly for Austin for not being Aaron, but at the end of the day, when they showed the father, what, what you hear parents say is, we're not going to show any emotion. We're not going to give any indication. Well, when Aaron Nola was giving it up after having the four-run lead, you could see the father totally despondent. And I wondered whether the mother was like elbowing him in the ribs like, hey, this is in San Diego. This is Austin's home game. Aren't you happy for Austin? That'd be one hell of a Thanksgiving dinner. All right, Coca, we're going to take a break. I'm going to uh, take a lozenge, maybe get a little nappy in. And when we come back, we're going to review Aftershock. And then we're going to talk about the first full slate of games in the NBA because two things happened that you're going to love and we're going to get to talk about all season long, Lionel Richie. We'll be right back. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise, and with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. All night long, all night. Are we back? Three, six, nine. Hi, David Sampson here with Nothing Personal. Thank you very much for rating, reviewing. Please tell your friends about us. We're doing great because of you. Go to YouTube. We're getting closer to 10,000 subscribers. I'd like to be at 100,000 subscribers because that'd be good for Coca and good for me and good for you. So please, Nothing Personal with David Sampson. It's a YouTube channel. We do videos. We don't do, by the way, that was so rude of me, Coca. I need to give you credit where credit is due. I do nothing. Coca runs all social media for Nothing Personal. He does the TikTok, Nothing Personal, the Instagram Reels, and he does the videos on YouTube so you can thank Coca. Nothing personal with David Sampson. I was told by a listener to watch Aftershock, Everest and the Nepal earthquake. It is a three-part series on Netflix. I had zero. This is how centric I am to my own life. I try to have empathy, which is something I'm working on professionally. It's something that I'm not very good at. And uh, I didn't even know the definition of what empathy was. So it is way harder to feel than you thought. Feeling what someone else is feeling is the ultimate empathy. And I'm not even good enough to understand what other people are feeling. So how can I even copy that? It's hard enough for me to figure out what they're feeling. But 
knowing what someone else feels is the first step of empathy and then feeling what they feel is the second part, I am an abject, absolute failure in that regard. But I'm working, I'm trying, I'm trying to improve. So this is a story that I didn't focus on because it didn't happen in my backyard. And this was an earthquake in Nepal that affected Mount Everest, it affected climbers on Mount Everest, it affected people in the city of Kathmandu, which is a song by Cat Stevens, and a place, and it, it affected people in a very remote village up in at high altitude. So I'm watching this documentary, and all of a sudden, I am feeling incredibly sad and guilty. I am looking at a village that existed and then disappeared. I'm looking at what happens between people after their village disappears and the fighting that can take place. I'm looking at the despair of death and destruction with a natural disaster. I'm looking at the fear of people trying to climb Mount Everest where the ground shakes below you and you're stranded and waiting to be rescued at an altitude that you should not be at at all. I'm talking about an altitude higher than Kilimanjaro, where when you get to the summit of Kilimanjaro, they're like, hey, take some photos and get the hell back down. Can you imagine being stranded at the summit of Kilimanjaro? This three-parter goes through what human beings do faced with natural disaster, what happens in the aftermath Aftershock is a double entendre because there were aftershocks, but also what happened after these earth, after the earthquake happened. Not everybody survives. Not everybody acted properly. Some people were heroes. Some people were zeros. It was like a microcosm of any situation, and it was incredibly emotional. Somehow it just hit me right, or maybe that's hitting me wrong. I didn't love how I felt watching it. I felt such, wait a minute, this may be empathy. Oh no, I didn't feel what they were feeling. I felt what I was feeling reacting to what they were feeling, saying thank God I wasn't there. Any thought I had of doing the marathon at Everest Base Camp disappeared when I climbed Kilimanjaro this past summer. Now watching this, any thought is even further removed. Now, that doesn't mean I don't get California, right? California could break off at any moment. There could be an earthquake there. That is true. I hope it doesn't, or if it does, I hope there's still Wi-Fi. But get it, Wi-Fi, because then you can still listen to the show. But I still will do things, but Everest just seems like a bridge too far. It just seems too scary to me. And then you add in the earthquake and the avalanches, and then you end up like Scott Glenn, frozen to death, John Glenn. What's the actor? I can't remember his name. In vertical limit, he was frozen to death on the mountain. So this miniseries, Aftershock, watch it. Please, you'll be, th you'll be happy. So the NBA started with two games two nights ago. Last night, there was a full slate, and I was fascinated trying to watch 10 things at once because I wanted to watch the Brooklyn Nets were starting, and you know where I am with the Brooklyn Nets. I've talked about the absolute shit show that the Nets have been all off season, the kumbaya between Durant and Irving once he wasn't traded. And I'm talking about both Durant and Irving. Durant saying, I don't want to be here unless you fire Nash and fire Sean Marks. We have talked at length about the Brooklyn Nets. And their first opponent last night was Zion Williamson 
coming back from injury for the New Orleans Pelicans, a team that made the playoffs, a team that even without Zion was good, and now they're even better with Zion back and looking amazingly strong. If you are the owner of the Brooklyn Nets and you watched last night's game, it is very important not to panic with one game. In the NBA, you play half as many games in baseball. So after one game, that's the equivalent of two games in baseball. So when you're 0-2 to start a season, you're not going to fire your manager. You're not going to change your starting lineup. Your first time through the rotation, you're going to put your same lineup out there. You're going to put your third starter out there. Everything is going to be fine. But there's something about the way the Nets looked. Because when you lose opening day in baseball, you lose. You're disappointed because there's fanfare and there's rainbow banners and star-spangled banners and there's special first pitches and you dress up nicely and you say happy opening day to everybody and everything is coming up roses and then you lose and you're just sort of despondent, but you lace them up the next day and that's the nature of baseball. And what you do when you are inside your clubhouse is you look at your players and you assume their reaction after a game one uh, of a major league season is, hey, all right, we're good. See you tomorrow. And you need that in professional sports. Basketball is the same, even though there's half the number of games. It's not like football with only 17 games. I will never forget the picture of Kevin Durant and Ben Simmons playing his first game as a Brooklyn Net. He had a phenomenal game. I believe that Ben Simmons had more personal fouls than points, more personal fouls than rebounds, and more personal fouls than assists. Maybe I'm wrong, but I believe I'm right. Check it. There's a picture at the end of the Pelicans blowing out the nets of Durant and Simmons sitting there as though they are miserable. And I don't mean the misery that comes with a blowout loss on opening night because that's sort of a temporary miserable. This looked like a permanently installed level of misery, like bolted in. It looks like when you're told to play well with others and you're supposed to be with someone who you don't want to be with and you try to pretend and then you pretend for like five minutes and then you realize, I, I don't like this person. I don't want to be here. Or you have to go visit like your, your eighth cousin twice removed or your old great-great-grandmother in a nursing home and you don't like the smell as a kid. Is that too personal? And you get sort of uneasy that sort of miserable when a teenager's told to turn the electronics off or you can't watch TV, that kind of miserable. The kind of miserable that when you're getting paid $30 million but you're still not happy to be there, is that a kind of miserable that should look like after one game? No. The Brooklyn Nets are in trouble. The owner of the team, Joe Sy, and the GM, Sean Marks, have to look at that game and they've got to realize that this is not a one-game situation. There's going to need to be a coaching change in Brooklyn. There's going to need to be personnel change because the team they've put together is not going to compete in the Eastern Conference. Everybody preseason had the Brooklyn Nets as one of the co-favorites. They're going to be that good. You've got the Bucks and you've got the Nets. No, you don't. Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, and Ben Simmons as a threesome will fail the same way Harden, Irving, and Durant failed. Brooklyn, start over. It ain't happening. The other game that was of interest to me yesterday, uh, or two days ago when the Lakers opened, everybody is talking about what's going to happen with the Lakers. Russell Westbrook said something that I want to point out, and I, I want to explain to you why I have this view. Because this is a front office view with an eye toward the difficulties that players have. 
Because keep in mind, being a player is not easy. There's no question about it. The physical preparation, the physical toll it takes, the mental strength that is required to be successful, those are all real. Being a professional athlete is incredibly difficult. It's the same odds as being a professional actor making $10 million a a movie. It is very rare. The majority are below the surface working tables. That's the majority of athletes never making the professional level. And then those who do, the majority of those never end up making enough money to live and they're retired at the age of 26, 27, 28 and finding other work, going back to school, whatever they're doing. Russell Westbrook has made a 10 lifetimes worth of money, has the most triple doubles of any player in history, whether you agree or disagree with the meaning and importance of that stat. Russell Westbrook is a prolific scorer in the National Basketball Association, but he has been a distraction in Los Angeles. You cannot deny that. LeBron James, as GM, has been an abject failure in putting a team together. Anthony Davis is not one of the top five players in the NBA, not even close. He has been surpassed. There was a time he was on the podium. He is not even, I'm even going to go this far. He's not even the top 10 anymore. And then you combine that with Russell Westbrook, who is not a winning player. He is a great player. I still uh, object to him being in the top 75. But that said, that combination of three players isn't working. The new coach there is Darwin Ham, replacing Frank Vogel. They could not trade Russell Westbrook as much as they tried this offseason because he opted into a $47 million contract this year. $47 $47 million in the NBA, when you trade $47 million, you have to take back $47 million. It's just very difficult to find a trade that works. They've not been able to trade West, Westbrook. And then Darwin Ham got permission, and Russell Westbrook may be coming off the bench. Now, he started in the game, but there was a game that he came off the bench, and he then said in an interview that he believes that he hurt his hamstring because he was coming off the bench. And he said he's never come off the bench, and therefore he didn't know how to stay warm once the game started because he's used to playing once the game starts. And all I could think of is everybody in the Nothing Personal audience saying at once, horse hockey. These are professional athletes, and we've got tons of people and gadgets to help players keep warm, to get players ready for whatever they're doing, pinch running, pinch hitting, coming off the bench, anything, we've got a system in place so that your body is ready. But you're a professional athlete. You've got to know your body. You've got to know that if you get cold sitting around, that's why you see some players riding a stationary bicycle when they're not in the game. That's why you see some players go back to the clubhouse because they're in the batting cage. They're taking swings in between innings or they're running up and down the corridor because we give them not the metal cleats, but they've got other sort of shoes they can wear on certain materials in a clubhouse if they want to keep their legs warm in a baseball game. In basketball, it's the same thing. There are trainers. It's almost a one-to-one in staff to players these days. If you need to be kept warm because you're used to starting and not coming off the bench, your job is to keep warm. It is absolutely inexcusable for Russell Westbrook to make excuses, and it is indicative of the problem the Lakers have. When you put together what you think is an all-star team, what you think is a big three, and there's finger-pointing or excuse-making, when you are running that team, you know that moment that you're not winning. The minute you see players making excuses, 
players not getting along, and I don't mean personally because you don't require the players to hang out. Players don't have to like each other. We don't care. 25 men, 25 taxis, no problem. Guys on an airplane not talking to each other, no problem. When the ball is thrown in the air, when the first pitch is thrown, that's all I care about. The Lakers have a problem. Yes, they do. Okay. Nothing personal pick of the day. How do we do? I, we had the under seven in the Padres-Phillies game. I, I meant to tell you what I, I – that was really one of the teams will not score seven runs. That was what the play was for me, and, and we won that because the final score, I think, was eight to four or eight to five. So I'm taking the win for the uh, Nola Snell game under seven because what you thought is that the entire teams, you add up their runs and it had to be under seven for us to win that. But no, it was just one of the teams couldn't score seven runs themselves. So that's a win. Not. It's the worst pick ever. I should have just had the guts to go Padres, which I did on CBS Sports HQ. That was my pick. I have to make picks on that. You can tune in. We're doing pre and post game every single game of the postseason. And I had the Padres. But I don't understand why I didn't make it the pick of the day. Luckily, we had the Astros winning, so we went one and one. We are 120 and 95. I got made fun of by Coca and by the people at Sportsline for taking the Astros in lane 190 because they thought there was no value in that. And I understand the value play. It's sort of risky to risk 190. But I guess we won. 120 and 95. All right, we got game. We got two games that we're focused on about who we were just talking. Clippers play the Lakers tonight. Clippers are on the road. When the Clippers are on the road favored by five and a half, you got to be very scared. That seems like a heavy line, especially playing against LeBron. LeBron getting five and a half at home until you realize the Clippers are at home. I mean, it's the Lakers season ticket holders, and the Clippers are playing in Staples Center where they play, and they're a better team. Don't be afraid to lay the five and a half tonight. Clippers over the Lakers. I think you are seeing the beginning of the end for the Lakers. I think that you are seeing a team that will not make the playoffs, that they will be right back in the lottery, and that will be it for LeBron and his experiment. They're going to figure out what to do because what they're doing now is not working. Clippers, five and a half over the Lakers. Game two of the ALCS, we've got Framber Valdez against Luis Severino, as we talked about before we started the show, or actually just in the beginning of the show. I'm sorry, Yankee fans, going the Astros again. When you watch Valdez, if you have not watched him, watch the game tonight. And Valdez is better than Verlander. That's how good Valdez is. And Severino, eh, Astros. Valdez over Severino. Okay. Coca, play some music. You know what I want? <laughs> I want to talk to Samson. So you want to talk to Samson. David, it looks like the Titans are getting a new stadium. It seems like there is no end to public financing. I guess you didn't ruin it for everybody? I had to work that into the show. I love when you ask me questions on Twitter at David P. Sampson or get into Instagram and you can maybe even on YouTube they're in the comments section and I'll try to get to some questions. And if you call me David, you have a good chance. If you call me Dave, you have a smaller chance unless the question's really good about a good topic. Anytime there's stadium public financing around... We're going to talk about it. The Tennessee Titans had an announcement two days ago, and it was a good one. 
that they're in agreement with the mayor on a new billion dollar plus, like a two and a half or $2.2 billion stadium. And I thought to myself when I saw that announcement, there was a lot of talk after Marlins Park, which has now been open for 10 years. It just finished its 10-year anniversary. Its first season was 2012. There was so much talk about fleecing the taxpayers of Miami, which, of course, we didn't do. There was no taxpayer money used. It was money from tourists. But in any case, I digress. I could say that till I'm blue in the face. I have told you time and time again on Nothing Personal, public financing of facilities is never going to stop. There was no chance that I am responsible for the end of public financing because this is what governments do. They build museums, they build parks, they build convention centers, they build stadiums. It doesn't matter who is the private beneficiary of any of these projects. Sports teams matter to politicians. They're not worried about being recalled. They're not worried about using your taxpayer money. They are far more worried about their chamber of commerce not having a professional sports team to be able to put into the bulletin and to put into the online picturesque description of the city. When you've got a team that you own, all you have to do to keep getting new stadiums in your area of interest is put a provision in that the public is not smart enough to keep out. And the provision is that we're happy to play in this ballpark, in this stadium, in this arena, as long as it is one of the top five ballparks, stadiums, or arenas in the country. Not the newest, but if there's newer that have better electronics, better scoreboards, better Wi-Fi, more comfortable seats, better ways of getting food to the fans, better ingress, better egress, better signage. We have to upgrade our stadium to have it be considered still amongst the best. It's the greatest provision ever because who's to say how you rank it? You're going to go to arbitration over that? I believe that these owners want this arena to be like the third best, and that's too much money. That's what happened in Tennessee. The owner of the Titans said, hey, we're going to need to spend $2 billion to renovate because we have an... We have a clause in our agreement, and you're in violation of it. And the government then says, wow, are we going to spend almost $2 billion to renovate? Why don't we just build a brand new retractable roof facility and then say, hey, now we can get Super Bowls. Now we can get World Cup. Now we can be one of the great facilities in the country. Is everyone in? Is everyone excited? The Titans are going to put $840 million into this project. Nashville is going to put in $500 million. And guess what? There's going to be $760 million that's going to come from an increase in the hotel tax. Now, I can argue that comes from tourists and people who rent rooms by the hour who are local who don't want to get caught in the office. But that is a huge amount of public subsidy. But it gets paid off because Nashville then becomes a hub 
a center, not just of music, but of other events. And that actually helps you with your property tax base because it helps companies want to move there. It helps increase values. Everything positive happens when you've got good facilities. Everything positive happens when you have good infrastructure. Everything positive happens when you've got things that attract money to your city. Sports facilities are one of the things that attracts money. That is beyond reproach. That is just a fact. Cities that have professional sports teams are more attractive than cities that don't have professional sports teams. It is a fact that cities which lose professional sports team will be happy to spend $3 to one to get a sports team back because they're so despondent they lost the sports team. It's also a fact that getting a sports team back after you've lost it is way more expensive than building a new facility for your existing sports team so they don't leave. Are you listening, Tampa? Are you listening, Oakland? I'm sure you are. I'm sure you know. When you are deciding what you are going to do with your professional sports teams when they need a new facility, just do the math. It's just business. Sorry, Corbin. It's nothing personal. 